Well, we are shifting focus. We have now completed our study in Habakkuk, um, but it's going to be a, a minor shift, if you will. We're going we're gonna to shift just a little bit. Uh, we're going to stick with the prophets at least for one more week, and we're going to go backwards in time. So we've, if you put Habakkuk uh, sort of in the very last period of time before the end of the period of kings, uh, before the people are taken away into exile into Babylon, uh, we're going to back up to the time of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet. Uh, he lived a little bit over 100 years before Habakkuk. So he was in the period where there were still two kingdoms, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You'll remember there was Judah in the south and then uh, Israel in the north. And Samaria was the, the capital of that kingdom and Jerusalem was the capital, capital of the kingdom in the south. And Isaiah is speaking specifically to the king of Judah, to uh, uh, Ahaz, who was not a particularly good king in the history of kings. In fact, he was quite wicked. Um, But in the north, you had the kingdom of Israel, who was was in civil conflict, civil war with the southern kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom, was coming down to attack uh, Judah. And they allied themselves with another nation nearby named Syria. And so Syria and Israel were, were knocking at the door of, of King Ahaz and bringing conflict their way. And Ahaz is concerned, right? He's worried. And so the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, gives him a sign. that uh, was a famous sign uh, that the virgin would give birth. It's a strange sign. But immediately following that, he says these words in Isaiah chapter 9, which we're going to be looking at this morning. And it seems a strange comfort for Ahaz and and Judah. Uh, But just to give a little bit of understanding, uh, Isaiah here is telling through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord is telling Ahaz, don't worry about Syria and Israel coming down. Because there's another nation on the rise, Assyria. I know it's hard to keep all these straight. We got the Chaldeans, who are really the Babylonians. We have Syria. We have the northern kingdom of Israel. We have Judah. And now we have uh, Assyria. And Assyria uh, was the big dog. This is before Babylon came to power. So Assyria, the Lord says, is going to come and they are going to conquer those northern, the northern kingdom of Uh, Israel, as well as Syria and Damascus. So don't worry. And in the midst of all of this, we have these famous words from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, which is what we're going to be looking at today. So I want to read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Now, it's just to give a little bit of historical background uh, to, to to get us into the text. I mentioned the gloom and the darkness, and so I want to read... uh, the end of chapter 8 to give you a sense, just verses 20, uh, 22 of chapter 8. It's the last verse of chapter 8. It says this, talking about the people of Israel as Assyria comes knocking. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then this word in chapter 9, verse 1, but, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Just to give a little bit of context, uh, those were northern tribes that were part of the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, So they were going to be conquered by Assyria. So just keep that in the back of your mind. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, So those northern tribes bordered on Galilee. Okay, But Syria was kind of on the other side of Galilee. So you got to get a picture of what's going on here. He's saying those... The situation now is doom and gloom, but, but in the latter time, he's making that way glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then we have these famous words, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, just as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this child who was born, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace. Lord, help us to see Jesus today as we look at this Old Testament prophet. Help us to see the promise and find joy. For We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, I, I know I, I gave a bunch of Old Testament introductions that may have been a little bit dry, but uh, kids, uh, I want to ask a much more basic question. Are any of you afraid of the dark? No? Yeah. Oh, okay. Here's one kid who's afraid of the dark. There's another one. All right. You're afraid of the dark. Well, guess what? I was somewhat afraid of the dark, particularly that closet door if it was left open as a child. That was like the deep darkness of the room. And if the door wasn't, yes, my daughter Heather is similar to me in this. If the door's not shut at night, it was a scary thing. Maybe you've experienced a really dark place. Uh, when I was in high school, I was part of uh, uh, the yearbook team, and we would put the yearbook together. And this was long before digital photos. And so we had a dark room. Maybe you remember those days where you took the film and you actually developed it and you made prints and everything. Uh, It was pretty fun, but you had to have a really dark room to do this. You could have some red lights, but when you were loading film into the canisters, it had to be completely black and you kind of did it by feel. Um, 
But even then, there was a little bit of light that would kind of come through the cracks of, of the door of the window, uh, just a little bit. Uh, it was pretty dark. But I didn't really understand darkness until I was with my, my, my friends from college. After college, we went uh, down to Tennessee and we went uh, spelunking. Uh, have you ever been spelunking? Uh, you go into a cave and you clamber down the cave and you crawl. And I mean, it was pretty intense. We were probably in this cave for a couple hours. And of course, you bring your hard hats and you have your boots and you have your flashlights and your headlights and everything. And you're down there and you're crawling sometimes through small crevices, a little scary, but you have light, right? Well, we got to this one cavern and we decided to all turn off our lights at the same time. We all turned off our lights. I have never experienced darkness like that ever since. There, were, there, was, there was nothing, no, no glow, nothing. Complete oppressive darkness. It was oppressive. Have you experienced that? It gave me some sympathy for those who are blind. I can't imagine the kind of oppressive nature that is. Chapter 8 of Isaiah ends with this gloom of judgment. Assyria is coming on account of the sin of God's people. And so Isaiah prophesies in the last verse, as we read, that they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thick darkness. It's a darkness of distress. It's a darkness of gloom. It's a darkness of anguish. And why? Why, why all this imagery of darkness? What, what was so dark about the land of Israel at this time? Well, it was the sin of God's people. You see, it's one thing to be stuck in a cave without light. There is a certain terror in that. But as soon as I turned the lights on, I was completely fine. I was, I was equipped. I could see around me. I saw then as I tur- we all turned our lights back on, we saw the nice pretty stalagmites, stalactites, and we saw the bats flowing around. And um, Everything was fine. But it's a whole other thing to experience the darkness of our sin. For if you're like me, you can't just flick a light, just turn a light on and have it go away. Every time I think I have it under control, it creeps right back up into my life. Every time I feel like I've got this, I'm, 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 I'm clean, I'm free, even as a redeemed person, all of a sudden, if you're like me, that, that sin just comes right back. There's no, there's no button to push. Today, my goal is to shed light into the gloomy darkness that hangs over our souls on account of our sin. And as we enter a time where we celebrate the advent, the coming of Jesus to earth, I want us to begin by considering the promise of his coming and what that means for those of us who live in darkness and gloom. For some of you, maybe you have never experienced the light of Christ. You only know the weight of your sin. For others of us, we've experienced the light of Christ. We know the freedom that we have and forgiveness of sins. And yet we struggle sometimes in the darkness still. 
But there is joy in the promised coming of the Messiah. That's what I want us to consider tonight. The joy in the promised coming of the Messiah. And there's three things. Move rather quickly through them. Surety in the promise. Joy in the victory of the coming of the Messiah. And then simply joy in the coming King. As we look at him as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But first, I just want us to consider the surety that we have in the promise of his coming. Um, I want to give a little bit of a a Hebrew lesson. Uh, I may have mentioned this before, um, so I apologize if if it's old hat for you, but uh, it's an important thing to note as we come to Scripture. Uh, The ancient Hebrew writers, when they would write, they wrote in different tenses as we do. So you have what they would call the past tense or they would call the perfect. Uh, it's the past tense. Um, they have a future tense. Uh, they have somewhat like a present tense. Um, but so you would think if they were going to talk about something in the future, they would use the future tense. But in fact, oftentimes when we come to the prophetic works, the prophets write in the past tense even though they're talking about things in the future. And that may seem very confusing. Why would you use this, what's called the perfect tense? Why would you use it to talk about things in the perfect, in the, in the future, if you're, as if they're already happened? So when you're going along and reading scripture, you might come across things that don't always make sense. And one of those is here that we see in chapter 9. Um, we see it early as... Uh, verse 1 and 2. He says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. All right. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You'll notice right there, but in the latter time, and, and the English translators try to bring out the future of it by kind of making use of various tenses. But in, in the Hebrew, it's just using the past, the perfect saying, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Has made glorious. Just simply, this has already happened. So this is an interesting thing. Why would they say something as if it had already happened, but was yet to happen? We see this in a few different places. We see it in the glory, the way he has made glorious the way of the sea. He said, he said in a, a little later down uh, that they have seen a great light, and on them the light has shined. It's already happened. He has already multiplied the nation. He has already increased the joy. He has already broken, uh, just as he broke, uh, he had broken them as on the he has broken the enemies as on the day of Midian. And then in this one last one, when he's talking about all the garments of war, you'll notice here he says uh, th- this, for every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Uh, it's very intriguing to me that the, the English translators translate this future because it's still that perfect will be burned is simply it has already been burned up. It's already done. Now, why? 
for one very simple reason. This is the prophetic perfect. This is the idea that when the Lord says something will come to pass in the future, it is so certain that it has already been accomplished. It's written as if the thing that is going to happen some 700 and plus years later down the road when Jesus comes to earth as a baby, he's the, 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 the author is saying it is so certain, so absolutely sure that we can talk about it as if it already happened in the past. As a parent, sometimes we make promises to our children. Sometimes we break our promises. It's a, it's a frustrating thing as a child, isn't it? <laughs> My son says yes. We say we're going to do one thing, and for whatever reason, we have to change course. We have to go a different direction. Uh, it, there may be very, very valid reasons why we cannot keep that promise. Yes, I know we said to you that we would do X, but unfortunately, we cannot do X because of Y, right? Sometimes, as parents, we break our promises because we are simply broken sinners and we forget. Here's the good news. God's promises are so sure. They are yes and amen. That they can be said a hundred, seven hundred, a thousand years more from eternity past can be said, this is going to happen. And it is so sure that they can say it has happened. Friends, this is light. This is the shining of the light into the darkness. When we come to God's word and we read the promises of God and they tell us this is sure, we can take it to the bank. We can say this is going to happen. What are some of those promises? That he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We can say he never has left us nor forsaken us. And we can hold that all for the rest of our life to say, no matter what comes, I know this promise is sure. He says in his word, I promise you the gift of, your, of my spirit to you. It's yours. He promises that he will forgive us. That's, that is for sure. There's no question. What, what about this sin, Lord? Are you, are you saying you will forgive this sin because this sin seems unforgivable and yet I know I've done it. As far as the east is from the west, so I remove your sins. It's a promise. A sure, absolute promise. That is like light shining into the darkness as we wrestle with our hearts and we wonder, is God, is God good? Is he sovereign? Does he have control of my life? Does he, does he give good gifts? Is he loving? Is he gentle? Is he merciful? We can say yes and amen. Shafts of bright light into the darkness. 
What does this mean for us? Surety of our salvation. Surety of the forgiveness of our sins. And as we think about this paradigm of looking forward, right? So here they are. They're living in darkness. They're, they're living in the gloom. They're facing the onslaught of the Assyrian Empire coming down the road. And eventually that same Assyrian Empire would, in a few years later, would come and knock on the doors of, of Jerusalem itself. And then, of course, later Babylon would come and take them away. And all of that was going to happen. They're living in the darkness, but they were giving these great and precious promises of this child, this one, this Messiah who is going to come. And this promise was sure. And as we think about that pattern, what does that mean for us? Not only have we the surety of what has happened. Christ came. Christ died. Christ rose again. Christ ascended, but we have the promise of his coming. He's coming again. What does that mean? As we think about Advent, it means we look forward in hope that the certainty of his coming is so sure that we can rejoice as if it has already happened. Joy in the surety of the promise. And we see this particularly in our next text. As we think about Christ's ultimate victory, we see this actually here in our text. And I want us to, to my second point, joy in the victory. And then notice a few things. We've looked at the, the, the grammar, how it points to that surety. But now I want us to think about the victory that we see in the text. It says here uh, in these verses, uh, we'll begin with verse 1 again, that we have this land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter times, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. For the people living at this time, as Assyria is marching, particularly for those uh, Israelites living in, in the north, Galilee was not a safe place. It was a place of destruction. It was the path by which Assyria would come down and sweep from the north down into Israel. It was a land of shadow, a land of death. But it's interesting here that there's this focal point on Galilee of the nations. Why? Why Galilee of the nations? Well, partly it is the, the land around Galilee. Part of it is touching Israel, but on the north side, part of it is touching Syria. Uh, it is a place of mixing, actually, where you have uh, various groups of people come together. We see this in the New Testament times. Uh, you have uh, the nations in, in this region, and also, by the time you get to Jesus, a, a very zealous Jewish uh, region as well, as they sort of see Rome encroaching and all these other nations. But it's interesting, as we go to the New Testament, as we think about the promise made to Abraham that Israel was going to be a blessing to the nations, as we consider what it means that, that, that the gospel was going to be not just for uh, Israel, but for all uh, of the world, uh, the gospel writer in Matthew uh, chapter 4 says this,
So Jesus, this was early in his ministry. Uh, John the Baptist has been arrested. And he is in Nazareth. And he says, he hears this. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, in the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Matthew looked back and he saw what Isaiah was saying and said, this was the fulfillment of the promise given 700 years before. There was Naphtali, there was Zebulun, they were being overrun by the armies of Assyria. The, the nations were coming down and yet here was the answer. The king was coming. Redemption was on its way. Salvation, not just for the people of Israel, but for all the world. The light was breaking in. The victor was coming. Not only do we see it in this section on Galilee of the nations, but if we move down, it's interesting in the very next section, Isaiah, this is back to Isaiah. uh, Isaiah shifts his voice. He starts talking to God. Before that, he was talking in the third person. He said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. But now he says, you, he's talking to the Lord. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. If we were to go back into chapter 8, I'm not going to do this, but if we were to go back into chapter 8, we would see that uh, that this northern uh, area of Israel where the Assyrians come down is called the spoil of Assyria, of Assyria not of cereal. <laughs> Assyria comes down and takes the spoils of war, takes the Israelites, brings them back into bondage, uh, pull, pulls them away from the land. And now there's a reversal. There's a reversal here that's going on. Isaiah is saying, here's what's going to happen. The king is going to come. And this wondrous king who is going to multiply the people of God instead of shrinking it, instead of taking it away, right? That's what happens under Assyria. The people are ripped out of the land, brought back to Assyria. The, The land is mixed up. He's saying, instead of the reduction of the people of God down to just a small little remnant, The the people of God are going to expand. And not only are they going to expand, but they themselves are going to reap a harvest. They themselves are going to take the spoil. And this, this was a picture that was to give them great joy. Notice three times in this little section. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest. It's the cause of great joy. 
this restoration. The king is coming. Finally, we see this conquering king in the very next verse. Says this, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. What's the joy? The joy is the conquering king coming and freeing his people, taking away their burden and their enslavement and the yoke that is upon them. And he's taking it away and he's giving them joy. All right. So what does that mean for you and me? Uh, That's great history lesson, Rob. All right. So we have the the nation of Israel is going to receive their joy when Jesus comes. But let's think about this for a minute. Let's go back into the gloom of the cave without a flashlight. Let's think about what it means for us to be oppressed, to have a burden on our back, to think about the sin that's in our hearts. What does Jesus as our conquering king do? What's the, the hope that he gives to us? He takes away our sin. He conquers our enemies. He crushes the head of the serpent. He destroys our final enemy. And in the end, he will wipe away all those tears. He will destroy all our enemies and he will come and he will restore the joy of our salvation in full. But for now, in the cave, in the gloom, he shines this bright light and says, rejoice. You have a king who is coming, who conquers our sin, who defeats our enemy. So that in the Apostle Paul, we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Where where is your victory? It has no victory over our sin anymore because we have a king who has conquered sin and death. This is why the apostle John writes in John chapter one, these words. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, not anything was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the joy, to know that the darkness does not overcome you or me. And this true joy, this joy that comes with this conquering king, comes because of Jesus. Let's look at the joy in this coming king. This wonderful passage that we have here uh, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, it it brought to this crescendo uh, here in these these few verses. Uh, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we consider the joy of this season, as we think about what it means for us to celebrate Advent and Christmas, it all centers around this one baby, right? And he's not just an infant. Like I think sometimes we get caught up in the cuteness of, of the, the, the sentimentality of, 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 of Christmas, and we've, we fail to recognize that this is the coming of the King of Kings to earth in order that he might take away the rod of the oppressor and bring us peace. And what is he like? Let's look a little bit at this, this child who's born. I say child in quotes. He is, comes as a baby. But as we look at the child, you'll see quickly that he's not like anyone else. First, for unto us a child is born. born. And I just said he's not like anyone else. But actually, at the very outset, what we are told is, is he is like everyone else. He is a child. He's born in the manger. He's born to human parents. He is born with all the physical infirmities of this life. And that was significant. If he was not like us, he could not defend us and represent us and pay the penalty of our sins. But he was like us in every way, yet without sin. Unto us a child is born. It's the glory of the incarnation. But secondly, unto us a son is given. And this isn't just any son. This is the son of the Most High. So as much as he is fully man and he has all all the infirmities of mankind except sin, he, he understands our weaknesses, he understands our temptations. As much as that is all true, that he bore our griefs, that he wept and he lived and he suffered hunger and he died, nevertheless, he was son of the Most High. He was son of God. Psalm 2 gives us a picture of this son, this messianic son who comes. It's a picture of wonder. It's a picture of awe. Listen to this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who is in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." And isn't this exactly what we're told here in these little verses? It says, for unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and on. And it goes on in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The king of kings is God's son. It's all his. He came 
as a babe. And what is he like? This text tells us a little bit about what he's like. As we consider the joy of the coming king, let's just contemplate these and we'll close after this. He's called Wonderful Counselor. Now, I will tell you, all the commentators wrestle over, is Wonderful and Counselor two different things? Is it one sort of Wonderful Counselor? And I I think the grammar probably indicates Wonderful Counselor. Um, But it's interesting, in, in, in the Hebrew, it uses a shortened form. Instead of Wonderful, it uses just the word Wonder. God is a Wonder. This son... This, this child is a wonder, he's a, his, but it's tied to this idea of his being a counselor. Now, okay, so what does it mean that he's this wondrous, wonderful counselor? What does it mean that he is full of wonder as, as our counsel? What does that even mean? It means that he is the all-wise king. It means that he has all knowledge. It means that he knows us and he knows the world that we're in. He knows our sin. He knows what we need. He knows how to save us. He knows how to love us. He knows how to discipline us. He knows exactly what is necessary for our life. This is wondrous. Think about this just just for a minute. You know, we go to people for counseling all the time. I, I tend to go to people, uh, you know, friends and stuff to get wise counsel. And oftentimes they give me wise counsel, but oftentimes I take it and I tweak it or, or I get bad counsel. Sometimes I go to a friend to get counsel and they, they say to me, Rob, I really don't know. I don't know the answer. This is beyond my ability. And maybe you've done counseling yourself and you've sat there and you've listened to somebody with, with a complex issue and you, you want to give them comfort and encouragement. You want to go in and fix their problems. You want to give them exactly what they need. And at the end of the day, you can't. You don't know how to fix the issue. We have a wonderful counselor, and, and, you know, when you see that word, you can think about it in terms of that, that all-wise knowing Father, all-wise knowing Savior, the one who has all knowledge, who needs no counsel of his own, but has himself. Not only is he a wonderful counselor, but he is a mighty God. He's a great God. He's powerful. There is none like him. He does not go out and fail, but accomplishes everything he sets his mind to. And so when he sets his face to Jerusalem and he goes to the cross, he accomplishes salvation and there is nothing that can stop him. When he comes again and he comes riding that white horse, as we see in Revelation, that picture anyway of his of his his victory, he comes and in a word he destroys. There's nothing that he does not fail to do. Here's an interesting one. He is the everlasting father. Now that's that's a 
That's an odd thing to think about because oftentimes we say, well, we have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. These, these three, of course, are three in one, right? And yet here, this is being applied to the person of Jesus, to the Messiah, to this, to this figure. And what does it mean that he is the everlasting Father? I think it means that he never, ever fails at caring for and loving his people. But he takes them up in his arms and he carries them to glory. What what does a good father do? A good father takes his child up in his arms. When they're weak, when they've hurt themselves, when they're crying, he doesn't leave them, right? He doesn't say, you just deal with it. I, maybe there's a time when you tell your kid to deal with it. <laughs> but when your child is wounded, you, you carry them up. You bind up their wounds. The Messiah never fails, but always is that everlasting Father. And then to close, he is the Prince of Peace. Friends, as we think about the gloomy darkness, the thing that makes this life gloomy, that's our sin. But what really makes it gloomy is that that sin separates us from God. There's condemnation because of our sin. There's death. There's wrath. There's no hope except in the Prince of Peace. You see, this Prince came to earth as a little baby in a manger to to live and to die, to make peace. To stop the tumult in the war, to, to, as you saw in those pictures, to roll up all those garments and to cast them into the fire that there might be peace and rest and forgiveness, and salvation, and hope. So as we think about the gloomy darkness that often surrounds us, we need to be reminded of that light that came into the world to redeem us, and to forgive us, and to transform us, and to bring us to peace with God. And not only with God, but with one another as we, as God's people, come together united in peace. It's interesting, as, as you look at the world, it's, it's hard to imagine peace. <laughs> it's hard to ever imagine. Like, I don't know if I've ever, we've ever lived in an age where we said, wow, we're close to world peace. But I definitely remember as a kid, uh, you know, there was, a, there was sort of these, uh, might have been Michael Jackson. I don't remember. I feel like there was ads around Coca-Cola or something where everybody was gathered around singing, we are the world. I don't know if you remember those, those ads. The sort of hope of earthly peace. And it seems to me that every generation thinks we can accomplish this. We can bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. And every generation that comes along, there's just more war, more conflict, more division, more brokenness, more sin in every family and every individual and every relationship. Peace is so difficult. And yet the Lord of glory sends his son 
the Messiah to make peace. Fundamental peace between us and God and peace with his people. There's great hope and comfort in those shafts of light as we look forward to that promised day when we will in peace live with our Father and wars will be no more. Friends, as we think about these things, let's rejoice. Let's have joy and give thanks to God for the coming of the King. Let's pray.